Yo, what's up? This is Ed Gallo. It's the Wrestling for MMA podcast. You know what it's about. It's in the name. I'm coming to you after UFC 257, and I'm pretty hype. I was pretty happy. If you listen to the uh, the alternate commentary I did with the Shriram during the fights, you'll realize that I was rooting for Chandler and Boyer, and I had predicted both of them winning, so... I was both right, and uh, the people I wanted to win won in pretty amazing fashion, so I'm in a good mood for sure. I think um, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> any wrestling from the Poirier-McGregor fight, because it was really just that uh, interesting little double situation in open space, and then the ride against the cage attempt, but, you know, it wasn't very good, and it wasn't really a huge part of the fight. Excuse me. So, I'm not going to talk about it. I have other things to talk about, though, from that card. A good amount of things, actually. So, we're going to get into them. So, the agenda for today is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Movsar Ivloyev's performance against Nick Lentz. Going to talk about Brad Tavares, just because uh, (laughs) there was an interesting conversation happening during that fight. I'd like to weigh in on it. And I'm going to do a little breakdown on Armin Sarukian, because he had a pretty... A good fight. He won, and, and he looked pretty good. But I think it also kind of revealed a lot of the issues with his game, so I'll do a fairly comprehensive breakdown about what I think about him just based on that fight. And after that, to top it all off, I'm going to talk about Michael Chandler uh, and how I feel like he matches up with the rest of the top lightweights and just kind of predict how those matchups might go. And that'll be it for today, so... It'll probably take me a decent amount of time to get through all of that, but, uh, yeah, it should be, should be pretty fun, I think. Okay, so, first thing on the agenda, Ivloya versus Lentz. Uh, last week on the podcast, I predicted that this matchup would not be very tough for Ivloyev. I kind of forgot that it was at lightweight, and that Ivloyev is a featherweight, so I didn't think about that too much. And it wasn't a huge factor, but I think it, it might have influenced me slightly just to think about Lentz being sort of difficult for him. Uh, he really wasn't. Some people could give him the first round of that fight, but if Loya was winning the whole time, uh, Lentz didn't really have any control over what was happening in the fight. Early on, I think it looked a little dicey just because uh, Lentz had some interesting setups for his striking entries. And Ivloyev wasn't expecting them, so he was landing a little bit early on. But I think once Ivloyev realized it was pretty much all linear, and he was just going to charge straight forward and basically throw two strikes at a time, he got a good read on him and started to jab him up. And uh, with regard to the wrestling, you know, because of the linear nature of the exchanges, they did end up near the fence a decent amount. And uh, Ivloyev was, you know, working really hard with underhooks and matching Lentz's level changes. I think that's probably what got him into those guillotine situations early on. I think Lentz has a pretty good guillotine. Of course, that's why he <laughs> he goes for it so often. But, you know, I don't think Evoloyev was really in danger. There was only one or two times where Lentz actually like had a guard and could put full pressure on with the body. Uh, you know, the choke itself, like, his, his grip on his neck looked okay a couple times, but I think if you've been in a lot of guillotine situations or have tried to guillotine a lot of people you know what you need to make that work and Lentz didn't really have it his guard actually looked pretty good Lentz's uh he was doing a lot with uh, butterflies to elevate 
and uh, overhooking the arm and just trying to get uh, Ivoyev to bury his head down and go like tripod up. And he was using that to work the guillotines. I actually think his guard would have been more effective if he wasn't constantly hunting guillotines. Uh, but, you know, Ivoyev ended up stuffing the knee and passing a lot and wasn't really too troubled by him on the ground. And, of course, on the feet, he was jabbing him up. And I don't think Lentz took him down at all. So, really, my, my prediction did hold up. He didn't have any trouble with him as a wrestler. Uh, Ivoyev didn't really need to take him down. And he hit that cool, uh, like, head lever uh, sweep from, from underneath front headlock that he did against Grundy. So that was nice. Uh, it does make me wonder a little bit how Grundy versus Lentz would have gone, just because Grundy probably would have been pretty uncomfortable with the way the striking was going. I'm not saying he would have lost in the feet, but I think he would have been under pressure and, and got a little antsy and shot more than he wanted to or in positions he didn't want to, and that could put him into the guillotine. So I'm not sure how Grundy's choke defense is, but yeah, that could have been tough for him. But Lentz retired, so we're never going to know. And uh, yeah, Vloyev moves on. Hopefully just going to stay at featherweight, because I already thought he wasn't too big at featherweight, so let's... Uh, stay there that's what i thought about that fight nothing nothing major and next a couple more fights happened and brad tavares fought Anto antonio carlos jr shoe face at middleweight and i thought this one was going to be okay <laughs> as a matchup um they're both at least you know competent with their games and uh, tavares has good takedown defense he's a good wrestler pretty much um people might remember him getting thrown around by yoel romero uh, I don't think that's any huge, you know, indicator of where, where he's at as a wrestler, just because he was, like, tied up and over-unders with him and, you know, square against the cage with him because he's getting blasted back linearly. So it's more about his footwork than his wrestling, why he got manhandled in that fight. Which is what I want to talk about here, because he did some pretty impressive things to not get taken down in open space. You know, very flexible, great hips, great scrambling, very, uh, very agile. And, and showed some decent, you know, instincts just for defending in good, normal ways, uh, like wizarding and underhooking and pulling him up and separating the head and things like that. So I think in a vacuum, he's a decent wrestler, and he's very athletic and strong for the division. A little, you know, flat on his feet relative to that, but, you know, in those situations, he looks good. People were saying that he is an anti-wrestler. They were saying, oh, he's a great anti-wrestler. He's a Robert Whitaker tier anti-wrestler. And that hurt my feelings to hear that. Because I've talked about it on the podcast a few times now. So if you listen to you know, a lot of the Q&A episodes, you'll know how I feel about this. Anti-wrestling is about not wrestling. It's in the name. So it's not defensive wrestling. If you're a good defensive wrestler, you're a good defensive wrestler. If you're a good anti-wrestler, you don't wrestle much at all. Because of your strike selection and your ring craft. It's fighting in a way that negates a lot of wrestling. It makes it hard to wrestle you. I talked about this uh, last week when I was previewing the Hooker and Chandler matchup. I thought that, you know, with Hooker's best weapons, it was going to be tough to wrestle him just because he's going to be jabbing to maintain a, a safe distance. He has the knee up the middle as a threat. Uh, he has some linear kicking as well to go with it. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that, that it would be difficult to wrestle him. Of course, that didn't end up mattering. And Hooker didn't really do much of anything either, but <laughs> that's the concept. That's how it works. Um, so Jose Aldo had great takedown defense as well, but he was also a really good distance manager, and he had great footwork and great ring craft, and he didn't get put up against the cage. 
um, and it, he made it hard for people to even try to wrestle him. That's part of why his takedown defense is so good, is getting a clean shot on him. Very, very difficult. So that's what anti-wrestling is. And Brad Tavares was doing a whole heck of a lot of wrestling. Uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. wasn't having that hard of a time getting to his legs. Um, and then even more, further so, he was putting him against the cage a lot. He was wrestling him against the cage a lot. And the takedown defense largely held up. But Tavares couldn't stop him from trying to wrestle with him. That's not anti-wrestling. That's not good anti-wrestling at all. Um, so let's reel that one back in, boys. Uh, a lot of people I, I, I respect <laughs> as fight understanders were saying that. I think it was just a mix-up of terminology, uh, but that's not that's not what that means. If anti-wrestling just meant good defensive wrestling, then calling it anti-wrestling would be really dumb because you could just call it good wrestling. You know, it's just wrestling in a vacuum. Uh, that's not what it was, so let's clear that up. A good win for Tavares. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that fight. And moving on, let's talk about Armin Sarukian. So, lightweight prospect here. People have been high on him since his fight with Islam Makachev uh, because he, you know, he defended a decent amount of the wrestling there, and it was a little bit competitive on, on the ground. But I think overall, you know, Makachev took him down a bunch and had a lot of top control. So he did win that one, and you know, I think I don't think anyone thought that like defensive wrestling was his issue because of that fight. Makachev is just one of the better wrestlers in the division, so I wouldn't go that far. But, you know, people were, were high on him because he was competitive in that space, and they all know how good you know Islam is there. So I think that's where the hype comes from. Um, he's also, like, really jacked and handsome and has huge legs, so I, I think that is definitely a draw. <laughs> Makes me interested in him. Uh, but, yeah, since, since that fight, he's been uh, relatively busy. He's had a good amount of fights. I believe he's on a three-fight winning streak now. Uh, he beat OAM, Olivier Alban Mercier. He beat uh, Davi Hamos and uh, Matt Frivola now. He was scheduled to fight Nazrat Hakparas, and I think he would have beat Nazrat Hakparas because Hakparas doesn't really look like he's competent as a wrestler. I think his fight with uh, Munoz was more about anti-wrestling. Any, to, be any, to be honest, um, he got taken down early on, but then it was harder for Munoz to get into good positions to wrestle, and that, that really aided Hakpras in that fight. But yeah, I think uh, Sarugian probably would have handled him on the ground, to be honest with you. So, sad it didn't happen, honestly. But Frivola is a good test. Um, here's why. For me, he kind of represents a competent fighter, someone who's overall middling, like not athletically a standout, not, no, no attributes that really stand out. But he's, you know, decently well-rounded. He can do a little bit of everything. And he's aggressive, and, you know, he, he, he tries to put a game on you, right? So someone like that, especially someone who's durable with all of those qualities, can really expose glaring holes in your game. Just because he's, he's trying pretty much everything, and he has the durability to keep trying and the cardio to keep trying. So, you know, if you if you have holes, they're probably going to come out during a fight with him just because you're, you're, it's going to go everywhere. He saw that with uh, Lando Venata. He's not... Not amazing defensively in any respect, and his offense has, has limitations as well, and Frivola was able to give him a really, really tough fight. So that kind of fighter, I feel like if you don't blow them out, you're probably not super strong in one, any one area because he's not going to be great anywhere, 
And if you have an area of, you know, top tier strength, you're going to be able to put that on him. He's not going to be able to stop you from doing that. Unless, of course, the rest of your game is that limited to not build around it. I don't think that uh, Sarukin struggled a lot with Frivola. It's just it was a little harder than it needed to be. And there, there were some troubling moments. And we'll get into that in a second. So that, that's my overall thoughts on Frivola and what this matchup represented. Even though it was short notice and he couldn't prepare for him. So everything with a grain of salt just because maybe you study the guy a little bit more and you're used to what he does. You have plans to get around that. So maybe all things considered, it was impressive. I'm just going to judge based on what I saw this time. Uh, early on, Frivolo was pressuring, so we got to see Sarukian on the back foot. I think he's actually pretty decent on the back foot. He gives up a little space linearly, and he circles out. And uh, while he's on the back foot, he can keep kicking. Uh, he's got that nice uh, lead side round kick. He goes high. He goes body with it. Um, overall, he seems more comfortable with his lead side striking, hands and feet. Then he is a uh, rear hand, and I think uh, I'm the same way, so I kind of get it. Like <laughs> you feel like you're committing so much more into a striking exchange with your rear hand, whereas uh, you can stay long and not really feel like you there's a threat of a counter or or having to like you know throw with someone in the pocket. And I think later on we saw he really really does not want to throw with people in the pocket. He just if he sees that he has an opportunity to commit a little harder to his own entry and throw like a three punch combination keep it long, and get out. That, that's basically the extent of what he wants to do as a striker. Uh, not because he's scared. I think he just isn't that good there and knows it. <laughs> it's more like one of those things. Um, so yeah, I didn't mind him on the back foot, especially because he's just frustrating enough that uh, Cravolo pushed a little harder, and he was able to set and get his reactive takedown, and, and that looked pretty good. So I didn't mind that part of his game, although later on he got pretty lazy uh, with his check hook and was getting bonked a little bit. And that's not good. It gives me Rockhold vibes. But I think he's capable of more than just that. It's just he did do that a couple of times and it wasn't great. Um, so after that first takedown, we got to see his like cage riding system a little bit. Pretty similar to what you'll see from Fabib that everyone's trying to do. Um, he likes to double off to cover on the cage. So he goes from you know controlling with the arms on both legs to uh, hitting that leg mount. You know binding the legs with his legs and then he can move his arms up to like the waist or the hips the hands and start to break down their posture and not, not let them build up uh he, he looked okay there not, not nothing great it wouldn't look super dialed in yeah frivola was able to get moving and that put them in those rear body lock situations which is also part of the riding game meta against the cage now and uh he didn't really seem comfortable with the whole you know bump them forward and break them down that way type of return system that's what Khabib does uh, but he is super strong he you know, can like lift in that return when he needs to so maybe he's more of a Chandler than a Khabib in that sense uh, I think it also works well because you know, he, he's good there he's good there he's not great there but he's competent there so it works well with the way he grapples I like his top game so when he's in full guard he, uh, he stacks and he looks for their guard to open or he opens their guard and you know hits a stack pass and basically rolls them forward um, or that's how they react to it because he's going to get side control and probably mount otherwise and uh, when people do that they give up their backs and then when they, you have someone's back they usually retreat to the cage so we start all over again and we're doing the cage right again so it all, it all kind of uh, it does work together 
and it extends the amount of control he can get. So I, I think his future is as a control grappling artist. So he needs to refine his game, I believe, to uh, to focus on that. But it, it looks all right. Uh, Frivola didn't seem too good <laughs> defensively grappling or wrestling. Um, but he was, you know, dynamic enough and you know, a little bit confident enough to force a couple of scrambles. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk about the lat drop in a second. But, you know, he, he made it tricky when there was, you know, transitions happening and open space happening. But, you know, in a vacuum, he didn't seem like a great grappler. Um, yeah, there was also a really nice moment against the cage where Sarukian had that body lock, that rear standing body lock. And instead of the bump forward, he, uh, he blocked out the legs and he pulled him backward. And I like that. I like that back return rather than the, uh, the bump forward for him just because he doesn't seem that... <laughs> that good in that position so why not just work on the stuff that you can do already so that was off the back foot and you know against the cage he pressured most of the fight so we got to see what that looks like and it's mostly just a one-two but it's not you know just throwing a one-two it's you know he has variance in his jab he you know can throw his jab a decent amount and with you know very timing and, and length on it it's not the best jab in the division but it's probably one of his better tools and uh his rear straight you know He's a hard puncher. He's a stiff puncher. I wouldn't say the mechanics are great, but uh, he can throw it. <laughs> he seems pretty confident throwing it. He can throw it hard. And, uh, yeah, he's mostly just a one-two, sometimes a check hook, and, you know, sometimes he, uh, you know, angles up that hook at the end of the combination, so it's more of a lead uppercut. Um, so his striking tools with his hands are pretty limited. He has a, a decent amount of variety with his kicking game, but... His kicking game isn't really comboing off of his hands, so it's mostly just kicks in isolation and then the one-two. Uh, but that was enough to pressure Matt Favola for the most part. Um, it does build into his wrestling, but not totally the way that I like. Uh, in the beginning, he was kind of following Favola. Favola didn't want to be pressured, and he was giving up that space. And he was, you know, throwing the one-two and then uh, shifting off the two into southpaw and then shooting the single with his righty lead to get to the single uh i don't love that setup i've talked about it before and it really just depends on what kind of reactions your opponent has so picture that your opponent wants to throw at you and they're going to plant so i throw my one two and i shift into the pocket they're going to throw on me and then i drop in place to the single that's pretty good um they're standing there i got the entry i can stand with it and build up and work to my finish okay but most of the time if you're like chasing someone down with one twos they're moving backward so if they're moving backward and i have to close distance with the single i'm not going to get the deepest shot and if i miss then i just wasted a bunch of excuse me i just wasted a bunch of energy and i didn't get the takedown or i'll get like a really shallow hold on it and you have to work so much harder to try to get it so i don't love that also if your opponent has good defensive wrestling reactions and you drop to your knees on a single in the middle of the mat they could come down on you and you end up in a potentially dangerous situation. Um, so that that's my beef with that entry, but uh, Suruki made it work. Uh, he, he has decent finishing mechanics, uh, good at building up and shelving the leg. He also uh, he likes to uh, grab underneath the foot and turn it up so the knee is facing outward and then point the knee to the ground so they have to go back over that hip and hit the mat. Uh, he did that a few times. That's pretty solid. Um, later on... Later on, uh, his you know unwillingness to throw in the pocket worked out for him. 
because Frivola really wanted to. <laughs> so other than like just pressuring hard, the fight kind of turned into Surikin doing things on the outside and Frivola trying to hit him when they were close. Or, you know, Frivola pressuring hard and trying to hit Surikin on the back foot. So I think Surikin recognized this and he teased him a couple times, like acted like he was going to throw more in the pocket than back back out. So Frivola got pretty greedy. He like was really eager to throw with him. So uh, Surikin could like jab in. And then as soon as Frivola looks to throw back, then he could hit his single leg entry. Uh, the first time he did it was gorgeous. The second time he did it, Frivola closed in faster than he expected. And he ended up like crashing into his hips a little bit and having to had no space to drive. Um, driving a little bit on a single is good. <laughs> you want that space. And uh, he had to you know, work pretty hard to stand straight up with the single and then lifted him to hit the return. That was in the third round, so I was pretty impressed with his motor and his ability to still be strong after a relatively difficult fight. Um, so that was cool. Uh, but yeah, one other note on the closing distance to get to your single thing, I forgot to mention this, that was the lat drop, right? He hit that one-two onto the leg, and uh, he was standing up with it, and he had to, you know, he had to drive in a lot because Frivola was able to start backing out of the single because of how shallow it was. So he was driving forward uh, and had to come back up into the clinch because he didn't, couldn't get to the leg. Just that predictability of his pressure was what allowed Frivola to try to latch drop, which, you know, not every fighter has that in their arsenal, so that's not like a systemic issue. It's just, you know, goes to show you it puts you in a, a vulnerable position when you uh, you have to chase something like that. And Surikin got, got out of it right away, so it's not a big deal, but... Um, if you're wondering how that happened, that's how it happened. Uh, yeah, so that was all. That was all pretty good. Things I didn't like uh, in open space, Surikin also does the you know faint striking at all, so it's not like he uh, had any specific triggers. Just like I'm going to strike now. Just kidding. And then uh, dove on a single. Pretty much what Khabib did in the uh, Al Iaquinta fight, and a little bit in the Conor McGregor fight of, you know, showing the jab a lot, showing the jab a lot, and like, oh, am I jabbing? No, I'm shooting a single. I mean, I don't... <laughs> other than, like, someone reliably trying to counter you, I don't think the jab is the best single leg setup in that sense. Especially because the distance he was jabbing from wasn't super tight. Uh, so that kind of made it difficult. He had to close a decent amount of space on it. He's explosive, so, you know, it works. He can get to the leg, but, you know, he was, like turning his hip toward the mat on the shot and the mechanics on the shot just weren't that good because you know they're not going to be when you're diving from that far away um I, I think that approach is more acceptable if you're a really really like lights out grappler and you only need one takedown but Serkian seems like he needs more than one takedown so <laughs> i don't love that i think maybe he should throw that out and just focus on uh, his safer entries that are more replicable um yeah, he, uh, he fainted the 1-2 and shifted into southpaw. So he shifted into southpaw in front of uh, Frivola without actually throwing anything, and his hands were down, and I think that could have been really dangerous. But, you know, Frivola didn't punish him, so whatever. Uh, but, yeah, that shifting into southpaw was important because when he shot that single, he was able to get hit inside. He was able to put his head on the inside of the thigh and the hip, and he could use his head as a lever to pull that uh, leg to his left and angle that hip down to the side. And then when the hip's down, he can just reach over with his other arm and double off and finish that. That's, that's how he likes to finish all of his singles I've seen. Um, so yeah, keep note of that. And I think a decent defense to that is, you know, pushing the head out because then you can't use the head as a lever anymore. Um, in the pocket, we talked about he's not very good there. <laughs> we talked about weaponizing the avoidance of the pocket, you know, draw people on to get to your entries. 
I'm just looking over my notes here, see if there's anything else I'd like to talk about. Uh, something I would like from him that he doesn't do is mixing in level changes with his striking. Uh, I saw him body jab maybe once. I think because he's so 1-2 heavy, just mix up the levels of your 1-2. Jab the body more, jab the head, and then straight to the body, straight to the body, and jab to the head. Just show, show changing levels with your combinations, and that should help you out with your single leg entries. Um, since he likes to single so much, that, that should be helpful. Uh, hopefully we can see that added to his game. He doesn't really need to get that much better as a striker to improve hit the connection of his wrestling. You know what I mean? A little bit better on striking could make a big difference. As a wrestler, I foresee him trying to improve everywhere and trying to you know be able to be competent and hang with the better guys in the division on the feet. And he doesn't look like a guy who's going to be able to do that. So I do worry about the direction he's headed in because I think if he can focus up on being a top game player... He could be, you know, a top 10-ish kind of guy. He could probably still be a top 10-ish kind of guy, just loosely strengthening all of his strengths that he has already. But I think a focused game could be pretty effective, especially because lightweight, up until this point, was really striker-heavy at the top. Now you have Oliveira and Chandler, making it a bit more interesting, and you also have Makachev ranked above him. So perhaps the meta is going to be a little different now. But for now, I, I think, you know, that's the best part of his game, so he should, you know, do that. Um, and pro he's probably going to fight other grapplers soon. Uh, you know, defensively, we saw we saw some good looks in the Makachev fight. In this fight, Favola tried to take him down, like, once, and uh, he did a really good job posting hard in the head, pushing it away, and uh, creating a strong angle with the wizard. That looked good. And uh, a lot of the time when they did end up in the pocket, he was good at overhooking uh, the arms and tying up the arms and looked relatively dangerous in that position so he he tried like one uchimata at one point but i think he's probably better upper body than we saw there and uh yeah i like his grappling it's decent we talked about the stack passing already and it looks like his system of in the stack passing is that front headlock choke series like he hit the stack pass and they ended up in front headlock and he immediately uh, sat through on the guillotine and put him put him on his back uh, and then another time he was in side control and he grabbed the head and he sat to his hip and tried to loop it through to grab his bicep to do that choke series again. So I'm really enjoying that part of the grappling meta. It seems to be coming out more and more. Uh, I talked about Ilya Toporia doing that as well. Uh, Toporia looks better at it than Sarukian is, but just like a very front headlock choke heavy uh, top game is, I think, a really good idea because, you know, it's a submission threat and it allows you to cycle through a bunch of different positions and stay strong. Um, on top, you know, you don't give up your position. So, I like Sarukian. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what his ceiling is in the division. I'll keep a closer eye on him for now. I'm probably not going to go back and rewatch the other fights. And I think Davi Hamosh gave him a pretty tough fight on the feet, which is not a great look. So, I think anyone lauding him as a striker should probably hold their horses. But I think as a wrestler and top game player, he has a, a decent amount of potential there and seems like a good athlete. And uh, hopefully he can make lightweight because <laughs> he did miss weight in this bout. And I don't think his game would be nearly as effective at welterweight, even though there there is some room for grapplers to move up there. Um, yeah, he's only 24, so plenty of time. So we'll see what happens with him. Okay, alrighty. Last part of the podcast is about 
Iron Mike Chandler. No one calls him that. <laughs> that is his nickname. He won. He won at UFC 257. He knocked out Dan Hooker. And he did it by doing stuff that he always does. He uh, led to the body with his rear straight. Did a lot of, a lot of pressuring off that level change. And uh, Hooker was really intent on circling away from his power side. And Chandler definitely saw it. And once they were near the cage and he knew he was going to be in range and still circling to his left, he fired off the left hook, cut him off, and uh, knocked him out. Well, knocked him down, then knocked him out with the follow-ups. I don't even know if he actually knocked him out, but he, he, he got the TKO. That's the point. <laughs> anyway, that fight doesn't tell us a whole heck of a lot just because Hooker didn't really do anything. But, you know, Chandler's in the UFC with a win, and I already thought he was interesting before this, so that's the point, is now he's in a position to fight some of these higher-ranked guys, and I'm very interested in seeing how that goes. Uh, for a bit there, Chandler was being talked about as the stand-in for either Habib or Justin Gaethje in their fight. So for that reason, I wrote two articles. Uh, the title is The Alternate how Michael Chandler matches up with, and then one of them was Justin Gaethje and one of them was Khabib. I didn't actually talk about those guys that much. I just mostly talked about for Gaethje Chandler's offense, his wrestling offense, and for uh, Khabib, his wrestling defense. And I think both his offense and defense are very good. I think his defense is actually better than his offense for MMA just because his stand-up is what has a decent amount of holes in it, and that has more influence over his offense than it does over his defense. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I have thoughts. <laughs> I have thoughts on him. Um, you should definitely read those for a more comprehensive breakdown on, on how I see him, but instead of breaking him down alone, I'd like to talk about how I feel like he matches up with, uh, some of the guys in the division here. So let's start with Dustin Poirier. So if for some reason he gets a title shot, he would fight Dustin Poirier for it, most likely. He should not get a title shot. By the way, uh, he should fight Justin Gaethje, probably. That seems like the right person for him to fight. If he wins that one, sure. Title shot. He does not need a title shot right now. He does not deserve a title shot right now. Charles Oliveira does. It should be him. Him and Dustin. Anyway. If he fought Dustin Poirier, I would be pretty concerned for Dustin Poirier, honestly. Uh, Dustin has not fixed his ringcraft issues it wasn't much of an issue against conor mcgregor but it's the same thing he did against khabib right he backed himself up to the cage and tried to work from there uh in a striking matchup i mean that's still an issue just because if someone can you know get you flat against the cage you have a lot less room to maneuver um in a grappling matchup it's way worse because you don't need to be that close to just shoot at somebody and push them into the cage and now we're grappling um, it's really, really hard. The margins are a lot smaller in that space to defend wrestling and to defend grappling. So Chandler pressures hard. He loves to pressure. I think his closing speed and you know, the ferocity, the intensity, especially early on, would probably be enough to convince Dustin Poirier to get in that range. And then they'd start wrestling. Um, Chandler is really good at finishing shots in the cage. Um, he'll shoot a double. If he doesn't have it, he'll switch to the single. And he's good at, like, uh, you know, moving people off the cage a little bit with the single, then reshooting the double and finishing that. He also has good single leg finishes. He can pull people off the cage and finish the single. He can run the pipe. Um, he can crack down and try to double off. Um, he prefers to double. 
And uh, when he does double, he usually likes to do, you know, bigger lifts and returns, which I think encourages people more often to try to turn away and get right back up. And he's uh, pretty insistent on, you know, putting hooks in and taking the back and, you know, working for chokes. And he's been pretty deadly in that respect. And, of course, that's how we saw Dustin Poirier lose to Habib. So there would be a big threat almost immediately, I think. That would be a really dangerous fight right away for him. Um, and then even if he does start getting up, uh, the mat return system, it's not like Habib's, but he is <laughs> a freaky athlete who can, you know, do a traditional wrestling mat return, get his hips underneath you, pop you up and slam you down, and uh, he'll try to take the back right off that as well. So that would be a really dangerous fight. Um, he could also shoot in open space, so I think, you know, Dustin being a counterpuncher could be slightly problematic if Chandler finds the leads that are safe enough to use consistently and also draw up the counters. That's not really the f- type of fighter he is, though. <laughs> That's why I was concerned with Hooker, honestly. I was like, oh man, like he's not going to be able to hide. That he's going to be level-changing over and over again. He's going to get neat or something. I still predicted the Chandler win, but I thought that was going to be a problem. It wasn't, but <laughs> I think maybe more of a problem against Dustin. Although, Dustin isn't much of a, uh, a level interceptor. He does throw that front snap kick a little bit. And he does have a nice uppercut, but I don't know if I've seen him catch someone coming in with it. Um, I mean, Eddie Alvarez is better with that, and Eddie Alvarez didn't really do it to him. So things could get kind of scary <laughs> in close range for both of them. Uh, for Chandler, because, you know, a good counterpuncher is probably going to hurt him, especially one who punches as hard as uh, Boye does. And for Boye, sometimes he gets a little messy in those places and isn't the best wrestler in open space or against the cage, so... You know, having someone that close to you and you're throwing, uh, opening up your, your hips and your legs, that could be dangerous as well. So that's a crazy fight for both of them. That's what I really like about Chandler in the division right now is that him versus pretty much everyone in the top four is a crazy dangerous fight for both of them. He matches up really well with the division and the division matches up pretty well with him. Um, I think Poye actually matches up the worst with him of everyone. I think that's the scariest fight. I mean, the grapplers, obviously. The grapplers are the scariest people for Dustin right now. I don't think anyone's beating him on the feet. Uh, So you have two pretty imposing physical grapplers right now. Um, Chandler isn't as good of a grappler as Oliveira, of course, but just the way that he does wrestle and grapple is specifically dangerous for Dustin Poirier. Um, So that could be spooky for him. Uh, If Poirier is low-kicking like he was against Connor, uh, you notice that Connor was catching them a lot. Chandler is way, way, way more effective catching kicks than Connor is. Um, fires, fires off the straight right off of them. Uh, can you know take it as a single and get to your back off of it? I mean, he he pounded Eddie Alvarez trying to kick him. Um, so yeah, kicking him is dangerous. <laughs> so like Primus got away with it, but if everyone, anyone just thinks like oh low kicking Chandler is just gonna work automatically, you gotta be good at it. You have to be good at it. Um, so Dustin, you know, being kind of mechanically messy and not having a lot of setups for it and just kicking naked, um, it's probably going to work not as well against Chandler as it did against Connor. And now people are scouting it. That's double dangerous. So I'm actually the most concerned for uh, Dustin if, if he fights Chandler. I think that's a tough fight for him. I could realistically see Michael Chandler winning a UFC title if he fights Dustin Poirier for it. I'd probably pick him, honestly. I think it, I think it could get really bad really quick. Um, of course... If Dustin's open space wrestling is in a pretty good spot and he's not conceding that space at the cage, 
he's making Chandler, you know, have to come to him and fire off his attacks, uh, that's a lot different, right? Also consider that Chandler is an orthodox fighter and Dustin Poirier is a southpaw fighter for the most part. So that's an open space matchup. Uh, Chandler loves his, uh, his straight, right? That's probably his main weapon and his open side body kick. So have we seen anyone trying to blast Poirier with body kicks recently? Not that I can remember. Um, with Gaethje, it was a closed stance matchup and a lot of, oh, I think it was still open stance, but it was a lot of low kicks. Um, but it's just a different kind of matchup for him. And, you know, Dustin's defense, the way he you know, rocks back a lot and, and keeps his guard high, I think the body kicks could actually be an issue there as well. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think if he boxes with him for any length of time, he could get knocked out pretty quickly. Um, but same for Dustin. If he wrestles with Chandler for any amount of time, he could actually get submitted pretty quickly. Um, and if he ends up scrambling and trying to get back to his feet, they could end up in a front headlock situation, and that's where Chandler is also very deadly. Um, if you watch the Benson-Henderson fight, you can see uh, how good uh, Chandler's guillotine is. A very, very strong like ten-finger guillotine that he can hip into and put you on your back. Uh, so yeah, scary. <laughs> scary fight. Um, so that's that's the Poye fight. He could also fight Gaethje. Uh, I think I would be a little feel a little better for Gaethje than, than Poye against Chandler. Uh, one, because the attritional weapons, like the leg kick, uh, you know, Gaethje's a much better low kicker than Poye is, or Primus, or Henderson, um, both harder and better at setting them up, and more insistent on pushing that advantage. He's also you know, more likely to be the one to pressure Chandler, although now I'm worried, <laughs> I'm pretty worried about after that Khabib fight that, you know, Gaethje being a counterpuncher, he's more committed to fighting off the back foot. Uh, I'm not, I don't like that. <laughs> I didn't like it when I first saw it because I'm like, oh no, he's going to do this versus Khabib. And then we, he, we heard him talking before the fight and it sounded like he wasn't going to do that. And then he did that. So I, I would be worried about that. I would have similar concerns about Gaethje that I do about Poi if he was going to back himself to the cage like that and try to counter that way. I think it's a terrible idea. Um... And the body work would also be a bit of an issue against Gaethje as well. Gaethje's body is pretty kickable. Um, so it's kind of a scary matchup there too. But open space, I trust him way, 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 way more than Dustin Poirier to defend wrestling. Uh, I think he's good there. Uh, he looked good there against Khabib as well. It's really the cage where he started to have issues and won because uh, the way he was moving against the cage. Khabib was catching him, trying to circle out. And then you know when his feet were together, he was shooting on him. Uh, and two, just he's just not <laughs> not as good there as he is open space because it's more different than you know amateur wrestling, which is why his base is still so so good in that respect. But yeah, in open space, Gaethje wouldn't have to be as uh, focused on counter punching, and he could probably let loose a little bit more, and they could exchange. And uh, you know, Gaethje's chin is pretty great. <laughs> I would trust them to exchange a decent bit, and he could probably catch him. Uh, put him out or you know work on him with the attritional weapons or or the pace would just get to him and the sloppier it gets probably the better it is for Gaethje on the feet um, considering that he's still pretty good open space as a wrestler so I like that fight a little bit more for Gaethje I think they'll make it I think that'll be the fight they make so that's a really crazy matchup and it has a lot to do with Gaethje's ring craft the way it goes Uh, because I think Chandler's going to approach it pretty much the same way regardless so it really has to do with what his opponents do in, re- in response. So uh, two people, Poye and Gaethje, whose ring craft off the back foot, or, you know, 
not pressuring, lack of intentional pressuring, is what doomed them in those fights. Do they learn their lesson against another, you know, guy who wants to pressure them and put them on the cage? Uh, I would like to learn. I'd like to learn that similar thing with uh, Charles Oliveira. He wants the same thing for both of those fights. So, you know, if either of those guys get Oliveira, then we're going to find out. We're going to find out for sure. Uh, so the last thing is uh, Chandler versus Oliveira. I think that's probably the worst fight for Chandler of those three matchups. Because, one, you know, the, the thought of him you know, top gaming him and grappling him is a little less realistic than the first two. Uh, the idea of maybe Oliveira taking him down isn't that out of the realm of possibility if the fight goes later. Um, early on, I would say no. I would say no, he would not take him down early on just because Chandler's just a very good wrestler, very obviously an amazing athlete. And uh, Oliveira's good getting them reactively, like body locks and, and such. But I think just the baseline level of competency uh, would, would make that difficult. Although the opportunities would be there just because of Chandler crashing forward a lot. On the other hand, Oliveira is probably going to be the one who wants to pressure. So you could see that being a little different. Uh, for Chandler as well, so I think you might get more of like the in and out Chandler than the uh, you know trying to crash forward all the time Chandler um, against Hooker. He was pressuring, but he was a little more patient. He wasn't really doing anything <laughs> to enforce the pressure since his, most of his attacks were uh, the lead straight to the body, and that's not really a pressuring weapon. But uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Oliver is another guy with a lot of lo level intercepting tools. Uh, a lot of snap kicking and uh, jabbing and uh, you know straight hitting, and he's a lot, you know, a lot more committed to that than Hooker is. So I could see a lot of the issues that I foresaw in the Hooker fight, besides the knee being there for for Oliveira to put him off pressure or to intercept his pressure. Um, but you have to wonder, you know, is Oliveira still susceptible to people who are gonna, you know at him super violently and take him down and you know, rough him up um it, it hasn't happened very much <laughs> uh even you know throughout his entire career let alone recently like felder is the last one who really brutalized him but um felder probably has better ground and pound than chandler i think that might be fair to say so it's interesting um you know Oliver also is, is pretty durable but he, he has a little bit of susceptibility um to the body end of the head and you know like i said chandler hits super hard he's very uh very powerful very explosive so that could be something and maybe this is where you see a little bit more of his um his round weapons coming into play like his left hook again or, or something like that just because the straights probably wouldn't have quite the distance he needs so we'd have to see some different type of tools getting him into that range uh and then and then coming back up but i think that fight's kind of tough for him especially with the height differential um so that could be awkward if they do Chandler Oliveira and like Poi versus whoever, Gaethje versus whoever. I think that would be the worst fight they can make just because you kill both your grappler contenders and then you just have, you know, the same two strikers that have already been fighting each other and everyone else and then Oliveira who can probably beat both of them. Um, I wouldn't, I'm not saying I'd pick him, but, you know, just for the reasons mentioned with Chandler is, you know, that's a pressure grappler. Who, and that's and that's who they both struggled with recently, so it's definitely possible. Uh, so I hope they don't do that one. I, ideally, they do Poye, Oliveira, and they do Chandler versus Gaethje. So if we are going to get Chandler versus 
uh, Oliveira, it's because they both won their fights. That's how I would want it to be. Um, I don't want either of those guys to really fight each other just because I don't think Chandler would look good in that one. And if he did win, then that would mean Oliveira probably didn't look good. So it's not like a fight where both guys are going to get to do their thing and it's going to be competitive. It's either like one's going to work or the other's going to work. It's only one thing's going to happen. Whereas uh, with like the Gaethje fight for Chandler, I think that's probably the most competitive. Um, And the Poirier fight, yeah, uh, that could get a little rough for both guys. But, you know, it would be a, a championship fight if it does happen. So I don't mind at that point. So I think that would be the the most intelligent matchmaking just to make the most of what you have with the guys that you have. Obviously I'm, I'm considering it from kind of a protective standpoint, but you know, you have all this momentum with, with, with Poye, um, and you have all this momentum with Oliveira. So you need to use that. Gaethje is a little bit, you know, further back than he was for the Khabib fight. You know, people are a little less hype on him. People are probably more hype on Poye and Oliveira right now and probably more hype on Chandler. So if you let Gaethje and Chandler do it, then you either give Gaethje the momentum back or you add momentum to Chandler, and then you still have these three guys who are hot um, fighting for the title in some combination. So that's probably how you do it. Um, there are other guys ranked in this division, obviously, but I don't really factor in like Connor or Tony Ferguson into this, and I don't think anyone else is really in a position for a title fight. So <laughs> that's how I see it. That's how I see it. A uh, quick look at next week's card. I think there are a few good fights on there. I haven't thought super hard about them. But uh, we have Overeem versus Volkov as the main event, and Overeem will probably try to wrestle with him. But uh, if you remember Curtis Blades versus Volkov, it was like that one-two in-and-out fainting double game that really got him. But when they hit the cage, if, it, if you know Blades wasn't already deep on a shot... He actually had a pretty tough time wrestling him, and Volkov was, like, actually okay after being wrestled for five rounds. He didn't gas as hard as Blades did, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if wrestling him is, is the game plan, but we'll see what Overeem does. Uh, other fights that have wrestling connotations, not many. Uh, Clay Guida versus Michael Johnson. I think this is just going to be a meme test. Like, we're going to see how true the meme is. Like, can Michael Johnson lose a Clay Guida because he's a wrestler? Um, I hope not. <laughs> he looked pretty shot against Jim Miller. Didn't take much to hurt him. So, uh, MJ still hits hard. He's still, you know, competent as a striker. And it's not that bad of a defensive wrestler. It's just, you know, things kind of fall apart over time. So, he probably finishes him in the first round. But, you know, stuff could happen there. Uh, Frankie Edgar versus Corey Sandhagen. That's probably the best fight in the card. It should be the main event. I don't know why it isn't. Um, that's an interesting one. Just because uh, Edgar against uh, Munoz, he looked pretty good transitioning his shots to rear standing positions, and that's where Sandhagen likes to give up. Uh, he doesn't like to give up literally, but he likes to give up that position off shots. Um, that's kind of how he defends. So I think Edgar could see himself there a lot. They end up Matt returning him. They could end up wrestling and grappling a decent amount. I'm still going to pick Sanhagen, but over three rounds, it's actually more interesting to me for Edgar than it would be over five, just because I you know, trust Sanhagen more to work on him and you know land the punishing shots. But yeah, that's a weird one. And it's unfair. <laughs> it's unfair for Sanhagen, who has like a decent amount of momentum at the top of the division. And Frankie Edgar has what I thought was a robbery against Munoz. That's all he's got at Bantamweight. 
coming off a bunch of losses before that, so I don't love it. But uh, hopefully Sanhagen wins, but he definitely has some issues as a wrestler that uh, that could be exploited. Uh, Alexandre Pantoja versus uh, Manel Cape. I'm not sure. I think they might just strike, but Pantoja has a good double. Um, and he's a great grappler, obviously, so that could be interesting. Cody Stamen probably going to wrestle Andre Ewell, but Andre Ewell does actually have decent ring craft, so it might be tough. But I wrote about Cody Stamen uh, fixing up his boxing game to be more wrestling friendly. Like He does a lot of things that could set up wrestling. So we'll see how their striking matches up and see how well that lends to, uh, to Stamen wrestling him. And uh, the one that makes me weirded out the most is uh, Benil Dariush versus CDF, Carlos Diego Fajaya. Um, two guys who are in a really, really different spots in their career. Um, and two guys that most of the fight site guys really like. And, uh, I mean, Dariush has just been meme KOing people, like noodle, noodle arm punching and spinning back fists and crazy stuff like that. I think before, like, against Drew Dober, he was getting beat up pretty bad and uh got to a shot and worked on a body lock and took him down and, and subbed him but uh i don't think Dariush is at the point in his career or you know might not have ever been in a position where he could sub cdf and uh cdf's gonna pressure him and he hits pretty hard and his his striking weapons are pretty good and i don't think Dariush has ever been amazing off the back foot Dariush is usually the one who likes to pressure so think it's a bit of a layout for cdf but if Tarush can pull it out again that would be just amazing um i don't think they'll wrestle much i don't think it really behooves uh, cdf to try to take him down eh, he might we'll see we'll see um uh, but yeah so there's, there's potential there there's potential on that card for a decent amount of cool grappling things and wrestling things and if there are i'll talk about it and if not i won't yeah that's it uh after that is usman versus burns and uh I'll give you a little breakdown on that next week. Yep, that's all I got for now. See you later.